Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. This special episode of Snap Sessions is devoted to a conversation between Snap Sessions' own Doug Nunn and comedian Will Durst, veteran political comic and analyst, who talks about his life, his career, his politics, and... Baseball included our highlights of Will's January 2019 comedy performances at Mendocino, California's Matheson Performing Arts Center. Take it away, Will Durst. President Donald Trump. See, that's the hard part, you know. It's how do you parody a parody? It's President Donald Trump. That's the joke. It's it's like a bad Saturday Night Live sketch. The ones that they put on. super happy here. We've got Will Durst, San Francisco comic. I've enjoyed his whole career. And uh, great, great to have you here, Will. Great to be here. Thank yeah. you, Mr. Nunn. Yeah, we had Will doing a show with us last night here in Mendocino. Went Will well. And, and Deb and Mike. Uh, Deb and Mike opened. Yeah. And, and they, you jumped in there and played I, a little freestyle with him. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was great to see everybody. Last night, uh, he was here in Mendocino. We had a full packed out crowd. Uh, Will did an ass-kicking good show. Huh. Durst case scenario mixed in some of the baby boom stuff. And it's great to have you here, man. Man, that was a smart audience. That is my target demographic. Rich old white people. That was, <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. And it was, you mentioned at one point, you said, uh, hey, it's good to see so many, uh, such a diversity of white people. It's the most diverse group of white people <laughs> that I've seen in a long time. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of good. And it, with, with it in mind that a lot of them are old hipsters. So we got yeah, that yeah. starting place. So. Yeah. Because I always try to study the town or at least keep in mind, you know, where I'm going because... There's other jokes that I have that are uh, specific to certain groups. Like, I have a joke uh, about hippies. And, uh, you know, Mendocino, where where they've sent all the bad hippies to toil in the granola mines at Fort Bragg. We got to do that joke last yeah, night. Yeah, well, you, know? you, can, you can get back at him tonight. Yeah, yeah. This is great. It's great to be back in uh, lovely Mendo, uh, as you call it. Uh, we, we're, we're big fans. We, we come here at least once a year. And uh, I, I love, it's so hard to get to. And, <laughs> that's why I love because you're not overrun with tourists because they go, Jesus Christ! What, 28 again? Oh, my God, no! And, uh, yes, yeah, the gateway to Asti. So it's great to be here. Uh, well, I know you 
grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah. And, um, you know, every once in a while, in fact, you kind of flash the accent, but it's always there, which is a good thing. I, I don't know. Yeah, you don't? I, I don't know. I can't. I know when I say Wisconsin, uh-huh. I, I do that on purpose. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I ever had one or if I lost it. And, you know, because, oh, yeah, I got the cousins here. Yeah. Oh, oh, we had a fish fry. You should have come down to the girls put on this really nice spread, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Milwaukee's a German town, like Cincinnati, right, right. like St. Louis. Right, right. Durst is a classic German name. What was your childhood like? Uh, my parents got divorced, and I went to, like, 14 different schools before I graduated from high school. Really? Yeah, partly because they were divorced, partly because it was uh, the height of the baby boom. I'm dead solid center baby boom. So they realized after the first eight years of the baby boom, we need more schools. These kids are, you know, they're, they keep on coming. So right. So they started building new schools. So I, I didn't move in, in fifth grade. I did not move. I stayed in the same place. Usually second grade move, third grade move, fourth grade move. But uh, fifth grade, and I went, I still went to three different schools. So just because they kept moving us around the school district. Were you like a classic class no, clown kind no, of guy? No, no, no. no. I tried to make the teachers laugh because the kids were always new. You know, because yeah. I went to so many. I would always run into new kids, and I was mm-hmm. I never had any deep friendships because they, I was always in a different school. My wife talks about her friend from you know third grade and stuff, and I have. I have no idea who are the people in third grade. I had friends in high school. I stick, stuck around, and uh, all of us losers kind of banded together, you know, to form a protective circle and <laughs> from the jocks and the, and the, the assholes. Uh, so, yeah, high school we had friends, college had friends, but uh, grade school, no, man, it was just a blur. Now, I couldn't help but ask uh, a Milwaukee Brave question, because I know you pres- you've been a Giant fan for a long time. Yeah. In fact, you glommed onto the Giants soon after you moved here. No, Debbie, Debbie, Debbie was yeah. totally responsible Yeah, Debbie, his wife, Debbie Will's wife, longtime improv star. Debbie Ann uh, Pickel Durst, very funny, much funnier than I am, but uh, she does not suffer assholes. She she refuses to work with assholes, and when you're in show business, that means you got like uh, you know one third of the employment possibility. Yeah. <laughs> so were were you a Brave fan growing up? Yes, Lawrence Bond, Eddie Matthews, Hank Aaron. Yeah, the very good knowledge, impressive knowledge on yeah. your part. My grandpa, uh, Grandpa Strauss, uh, mm-hmm. he was a big baseball fan. And so we would sit on his porch and listen to Braves games. And I went to a bunch of, because, you know, County Stadium was not that far from our house. We lived in West Dallas, and County Stadium was on the west side of Milwaukee. So it was like, you know, three miles. I could walk there. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Knothole Gang, we had the Knothole Gang. And, oh, really? And then in 1965, the Braves got bought by a guy in Chicago. He's the guy who moved into Atlanta. And he said the Milwaukee Braves will stay in Milwaukee as long as you want us. And the next year he moved them. Yeah, I remember. So that. I hate Atlanta 
and I hate Chicago for those two reasons. I can they see never that. had a losing season in Milwaukee. They never drew less than a million people in Milwaukee. Never until the final year after they announced that they were leaving because we're not the celebrate somebody leaving kind of Midwesterns that you hear so much about. Yeah, where, get, yeah don't let the do, uh, door knock you in the ass on your way out. <laughs> we're that kind of group. Yeah. You know, I was telling you last night, you know, I remember the, the Braves won the World uh, Braves made the World Series or won both years, 57 and 58. They, they were one game out in 56. They won the World Series in 57. They were up 3-1 to the Yankees in 58, but they ended up losing that one. Yeah. And then they were one game out in 59. So those four years, the man. glory years. Yeah. yeah. So I know. felt a special attachment to the Giants. Yeah. Living in Milwaukee because my grandma, Strauss, my grandma had a sister who lived in San Francisco and she would come out every year to visit her sister from Milwaukee. And she would come out to San Francisco and talk about the city. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I developed kind of a love affair with San Francisco. She never went to a Giants game and brought me back memorabilia or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. it wasn't that, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. But, uh, you know, I just had this uh, connection. So you got an early on connection with, with San Francisco. And I know I was going to ask you in a few minutes, but I wanted to get a little bit more Milwaukee stuff. So you had early on in, sort of an indistant infatuation with yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, long distance love affair. Yeah. I know it says, uh, I, you know, did a little Will Durst background reading and stuff. And then also knowing you, you went to all kinds of schools and Milwaukee. You mentioned schools and then colleges, too. You started doing open mics, what, in 74, 75, something like that? or I actually had moved to L.A. before that, uh, like in 72. First, I came out, and I was on the dating game. And that oh, was you were on the dating game. Awesome, yeah. Right. So, 71, 72... I went out, I moved out with a gay priest, and, oh. uh, yeah, I didn't know he was a gay priest at the time, I just knew he was a priest, uh, <laughs> so I moved out, uh, I tried to do it in show business a little, it didn't work out, I was broke, I couldn't make any money in L.A., because we were living in Culver City, so I moved back to Milwaukee, and uh, I came back on the day they showed my dating game and I walked down the stairs and I said, uh, what's on TV? And all my friends laughed and it was it was kind of scary. And then I worked in, um, in Milwaukee again and then I came out again. What I would do is uh, I would go to college and I went to a bunch of different colleges. I moved out of the house when I was 16 because my stepfather said, cut your hair and move out. So I moved out. And I was able to earn a living working at a little drugstore, delivering drugs after school. (laughs) No, actually, you know, prescribed drugs. Mm -hmm. And I lived in a a boarding house. You know, I had a room with a bathroom down the hall. And I went to college and, and worked and stuff. And high school. I went to high school as well. So I went to high school during the day, but I had everything before noon. And then I was able to leave. I got voted in senior class vice president, which was a goal of mine. And then I skipped the second semester. So that was UWCWC. First, it was Waukesha County Technical uh, Institute, huh. WCTI. And then I went to UWCWC, University of Wisconsin, Waukesha County campus. And then I went to UWM. 
And uh, I liked UWM, uh, although the theater department at UWCWC was fun. But uh, I liked UWM, and I would apply for it was, you know grants and loans. You uh-huh. know, back then we used to do that. They used to give us money. Yeah, like sure. That. Those yeah, were yeah. the days, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so some of the some of them were grants. You know, about half and half. Some of them were loans. And I was living in Milwaukee, going to UWM, and I had an apartment for eighty five dollars a month. Man. Yeah. Uh, $85 a month, and I was working, worked at the the Milwaukee Athletic Club, where I was kind of a bellman, a valet, you know, I did it, and it was uh, the night shift, and best scrambled eggs I ever had. Uh, But uh, I did that. After high school, I went to college for five semesters. Mm -hmm. And then the sixth semester, so it must have been 73, sixth semester, I took the money, all the grant and loan money, and I registered for, you know, and then I, I took the money and ran away to L.A., yeah. Oh. And I lasted for six months or something out in L.A. And then I came back with my tail between my legs and, you know, scuttled around and got another job. And then I applied for grants and loans, and they gave them to me. And I went for three semesters, and the fourth semester I took the money and ran away to L.A. again. <laughs> and then, uh, again, six months, I couldn't do it. And I came back to Milwaukee, and I applied again free grants and loans at EWM and they said okay but this is the last time (laughs) (laughs) and and so I went for another couple semesters but I never I never graduated I think I think in terms of credits I you know I'm not even a junior you know Uh but Uh I studied journalism and theater and broadcasting and film and I originally wanted to be a director I wanted to go to film school but Wisconsin had our version of Prop 13, oh, where, yeah. and so they defunded all the. So we never got cameras. You know, we were a film school without cameras, so it was a lot of theory. Yeah. Uh, a lot of theory. Uh, great Orson Welles class, though. Oh, great, and, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. because he was from Wisconsin. So uh, I didn't know Orson Welles was from Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kenosha. So then uh, this theater group started out in Milwaukee. And it was Paul Sills. Oh, right. He's the famed improv uh, coach. Or, right. and isn't he right. the son of uh, Viola Spolin? Exactly. Yes. Very good. The yes. one who inv- invented all the theater games for the WP improvisation for the theater. Right. Or as we call it, the Bible. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he came to Milwaukee for some insane reason. He and his wife, uh, Carol, came to Milwaukee uh, and with... Jones Cullinan, who was uh, the sound person on De- on the the documentary "Don't Look Back" by Penny Baker about Bob Dylan, she w- oh, yeah. and she had met Max Sampson, who was a young uh, theater uh, seeker and stuff. So they created this thing called Century Hall, and they took out all the bowling alleys and created a rock and roll space where the bowling alleys were. And then they took the uh, the alleys, the physical alleys, and cut them up and made dining room tables. So there was a huge dining room with, with the first exhibition kitchen. And then they had a bar. And then upstairs, because this was a huge place, upstairs they had uh, a dance rehearsal space and a little theater, a little studio theater set, about 85 people. And Sills would teach improv games while they were constructing Century Hall. And so every night we'd be up in the, the theater and he would do games. And he started out with like 35 people, you know. Oh, Paul Sills was here. The guy who started, you know, Compass Players, which became <laughs> Second City. So right. all these people from Milwaukee Theater kind of came. 
And then they, uh, and then he got rid of people like that. He oh, really? was merciless. Yeah, he was merciless. He he did not uh, he did not sweat the milk of human kindness. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was fierce, but you know, as they say about a good teacher, he was always honest. So he got us down to a core group of about twelve, and then. The whole building opened up, and uh, the rock and roll on the weekends in the bowling alley space would pay for it, because Mondays they would have poetry, and Tuesdays they would have opera, and Wednesdays, they, you know, it was always some jazz, and then Thursday, and, and then Sunday, you know, it was always something different going on in there, and then they would have the theater and the upstairs and the, the dance groups would do the rehearsal. So there was always something going on. And I was Will the Cosmic Waiter. I would, uh, <laughs> uh, I would sit down with people. I would talk to them. And then Jones, one of the owners, fired me from being the Cosmic Waiter because uh, she was putting together a CETA documentary program. I don't know if you remember CETA, but that was uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, kind of WPA Oh, and it stood okay. for Comprehensive Education and Training Act. And so she had this deal because she had done documentaries. So she applied to CETA. And we were going to uh, document all the CETA recipients because they needed documentation in order to get their certification and get more money the following year. So, And I had to be out of work for six months in order to qualify for the CETA job. So that happened. Uh, she fired me, and uh, I had started doing stand-up comedy uh-huh. in Milwaukee. Were you, was, were you working like at the time with your index cards and headlines? The kind of the, when I first saw you, you'd be at the Holy City Zoo with like you know head, headlines and stuff, and you'd work from the newspaper a lot. Were you doing that already then? No, uh-huh. no, mm-hmm. I was just trying to get a set together. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a friend of mine, uh, his name is Alexei Jankowski. And uh, he goes by his initials A.J., mm-hmm. but A-Y-E-J-A-Y-E. And he was the original oh, yeah. original Ronald McDonald. He was uh, the guy, he came from a circus family uh, in Eastern Europe and uh, moved to America and did the circus. And uh, he was, uh, he tried stand-up and he tried everything. And then in Chicago, he was with an agent and uh, they were auditioning for a clown for for McDonald's and he had clown training so he didn't think anything of it and all these other you know fancy dancy theater people in Chicago were a little hesitant he, he was a clown so he got the gig he was the first Ronald McDonald ever and uh, he wasn't the TV Ronald McDonald though oh, that's yeah. how everybody and he wasn't as, but he created the part. He wrote the book that everybody had to buy when they became a Ronald McDonald. Wow. And he was known as a trouble clown. Like when when uh, the Fox River Valley Ronald McDonald you know, got in trouble for having a little girl sit in his lap for a little too long. He would come in and uh, you know he would uh, raid for the guy to leave town. And he was trouble clown. He was like a bishop in the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If not a cardinal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so uh, he was the king of Milwaukee. He lived in Milwaukee. And he had uh, this pack of people that followed him around. That were the Hamburglar when he did the big shows, you mm-hmm. know, that mm-hmm. and all those other characters that they created. And they were troubled youth, and he he had a loft where he, where he hung out with them. I mean, he was a do-gooder and a, a great guy. And he got me an audition because there was, uh, at the airport lounge, 
there was like Milwaukee was one of the last people to have these things, you know, at the airport lounge where they have a review and it's show tunes and then they have a comic in the middle and it's four yeah. people and good old variety to, show. Then. Exactly. Uh-huh, that, uh-huh. that used to be a big thing. Uh, but Milwaukee was the last vestige holding on to it. And uh, so the guy who was the comic was leaving to go to Minneapolis. Uh, so they had uh, an audition to replace him. And so I, the night before, furiously, because I was writing. I was uh, mm-hmm. writing for the local underground newspaper, which was called the Bugle American. So I had some humor columns. Yeah. So I took all the funny parts from the humor columns and I put them down. And then I took all the funny parts that I thought nobody would realize were actually Woody Allen's uh, stand-up uh, material, and I put those down. And then I got some old jokes, and I put those down, and I shook them up and came up with seven minutes. And then I did the audition, but I didn't have the balls to do the audition live, so I taped it, and I put it on a tape cassette. And I played the tape cassette at the audition, and it was it was uh, horrible. It was the height of Milwaukee sophistication. It was a bunch of people sitting around and in uh, comfy chairs drinking scotch out of coffee cups. I just died. But I had seven minutes. And there was an open mic at the Rusty Nail on Juno and Water Street every Monday night. And I went down uh, one Monday, prepared with the seven minutes. It was... It was like 18 different versions of hell. It was underground. It was all these students from uh, Milwaukee Area Technical College watching Monday Night Football, and we'd have to turn it off for for the, uh, the showcase, and they weren't happy about that. And then there was infighting amongst the comics. And it was just, it was hysterical. Mm-hmm. And the first night, I was already like fourth or fifth best because you know I'd been doing plays my entire life, sure, theater, yeah. so I had a little stage presence, <laughs> and I would. Most of the material was mine, so it sounded like me. So, And then I just kept doing it, and that was November 4th, 1974. And then within about well, late 70s, you ended up coming out to San Francisco. You had been working open mics. You had been doing gigs in Milwaukee or around surrounding area, too. Right. And then the, what was the big inspiration to move you out to SF? I mean, SF was already getting a reputation as a comedy town, right? Or it had been in and out of being a comedy town. Well, that CETA job that I told you right, about. Right, okay. Uh, that ended mm-hmm. uh, because you could only work for CETA for 18 months, and then they... Uh, that ended, so I was going to get unemployment, like uh, 50 bucks a week, but 50 bucks a week back in 1979 wasn't bad, and we had lost all of our showcases in Milwaukee, because in Milwaukee, because of a bizarre licensing law, comedy is illegal, mm-hmm. because uh, the law was written in the 50s for municipal licenses and shit, and they put stand-up comics under the same... Imprimatur as strippers because comics were MCs for strippers. Right. So I yeah, wrote them yeah. under the same license. So to this day, if you want to charge money for a stand up comedy show in the environs of the city in Milwaukee, you have to buy a nude dancing license, an exotic dancing license. And so uh, we had lost all of our showcases, and I would go down to Chicago, you know, a 90 mile drive down to Chicago. And as soon as they found I was from Milwaukee, they put me on first or last. Uh-huh. You know, and that was and protecting their own people because they didn't want to put their, you know, this guy, he has a chance. They want to put him on first because that's a death slot. And they don't want to put you on last because that's a death slot. So, uh, you know, and, I mean, there's prime time in the middle. So I could never get a good slot. And I just decided to move out. And then Nancy, 
My girlfriend, she moved out previously, so I arranged to live with her for, uh, well, I thought it was going to be permanent, but it only ended up being a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've run into that one before, yeah. too. So I had, had a place to stay, I had 50 bucks a week, uh, and uh, there was an article in Playboy, because Robin had just gotten more convinced he was taking the country by storm. They had an article in Playboy about Robin Williams, and he did that, you know, that... Uh, the Playboy interview with yeah. the, the black and white photos that they yeah. had at the bottom. And then they had a little sidebar in there, and it was about the Holy City Zoo, the club that comics call home. Right. And they talk, and it was just a showcase club, and it sounded like heaven. And so, yeah, that was another that was another thing. And my grandma, and, you know, right. always filling grandma me Grandma Strauss? Full, always filling me full of San Francisco stories, yeah. Yeah. So that got you going. You ended up in San Francisco. Because I had already tried moving to L.A. twice. Right. It didn't work out. And so did you feel like a natural affinity for San Francisco right away when you got there? Just... It was weird. I got here uh, on November 4th, 1979. For some reason, uh, November 4th, 74 was when I started stand-up comedy. November 4th, 1979 was when I set foot in San Francisco. And November 4th, 1981 is when Debbie and I got married. So for some wow. reason, 11-4, yeah, I don't know why. And it, then it stopped. Nothing, nothing synchronous after that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, the first day I got here, and I went to the punchline because they had showcases on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had worked in Milwaukee with a guy, a musician, an old and timey musician. He's our age, mm -hmm. but he's, you know, I mean, even when he was 27, he was 65 years old. Yeah, you know, one he, of those guys. He yeah. looked like it, and uh -huh. he was a musician, <laughs> and he played old and timey uh, New Orleans jazz music. Mm -hmm. and he's still around. He's very famous now. His name is Paul Seabar. Mm -hmm. And so I had done gigs with Seabar in Milwaukee just before I left. And he went to a place called the New College. And when I got when I got to uh, the Punchline in San Francisco, the host of the open mic was named Glenn Merzer. And I told him I was from Milwaukee. He said, oh, I have a friend in Milwaukee, uh, Paul Seaver. I said, dude, I just worked with him. And so he gave me a good slot. Oh. And I did well on my first slot at the Punchline. And then the next night, I went to the Holy City Zoo, and John Cantu, who was oh, running yeah. the zoo, mm -hmm. uh, he had seen me the night before, and he seen me do well, and he said, "Ah, oh, put you up, put you up. So I'm waiting to go on stage, and Michael Pritchard is on stage. Right. And Michael Pritchard is 6'6", six, six, and at the time he wore uh, three-inch cowboy, uh, boot, cowboy boots with three-inch heels, and so he was 6'9", and uh, the stage at the Holy City Zoo, I mean, it's cramped. It seats 47 legally, you know. And uh, he was on stage, and they used to have these pitchers of beer at the zoo. And they weren't full-size pitchers. They weren't 64-ounce pitchers. They were like little 48-ounce pitchers. And they would say, pitcher of beer. And people would go, and then they go, oh. Uh, but he would, he, would, uh, he would go on stage with the pitcher full of beer, oh, 48 ounces, and he's six six, and he's wearing heels, and he's and he's he looks huge. Yeah, he looked and, like a defensive end or something. Oh, he was. Huge. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and he would hold this small picture so the perspective makes him look even bigger, right? Because everybody's expecting the picture to be uh, regulations. He said, this is everything I ever learned in college. And he chugged the picture of 48 ounces of beer. That's how he started his act. And I'm in, I'm in, uh, in uh, San Francisco, and I'm going, Jesus Christ, this is a whole new ballgame. And I don't, I don't live in the real world, I live in San Francisco, you know, because I come from Wisconsin, and uh, I, I go back to Wisconsin, and I'm a Tommy Pinko Yell Right Bastard. <laughs> but, but in San Francisco, I'm a Nazi. I mean, they're, they're crazy. We're beyond, you know, that whole blue red thing that they got, you know, we're, we're beyond blue. We're you know, in San Francisco, it's bluer than the sliver. So he got done, and I'm about to go on stage. And Cantu says, no, no, wait, wait, Cantu. So I'm sitting at the bar at the end of the bar there, and I'm sitting at the end of the bar. <clears throat> we got a special guest tonight, Robin Williams. So Robin Williams comes on stage. Oh, man. Now, there might have been 25, 30 people in the audience. Well, the word goes out on Clement Street. You know, the twilight bark, all the way from Matches 40 to Vesuvio's to to uh, uh, whatever those bars were, the Iranian bar. Uh, the Starry Plow, I think, was done there? Nah, that, that was farther, yeah, too okay. far away. Okay. But there was, there was Churchill's, and there were all these fern bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, so I'm crushed. He's doing 45 minutes. Yeah. He's doing, by the end of the 45 minutes, the people are standing on their tiptoes, you know, because the, the entrance is packed all the way through. It must be 150 people in a place that seats 50, and they're standing on their tiptoes, you know, trying to see in from the sidewalk. So he finishes. 45 minutes. He's sweating like a stuck pig. And um, <laughs> he leaves and goes out, you know, that little, that little uh, thing uh, out to the sidewalk, and the whole audience follows him. And I'm trying to get to the stage because Cantu's introducing me now. I can't get to the stage because so many people are leaving. And then he did another 25 minutes on the sidewalk. Oh. Yeah. And I'm on stage. And yeah. <laughs> that, so that first one was great. Second gig was great, but uh, I didn't do well. <laughs> well, when you, when you got, you mentioned Pritchard, Robin Williams. To me, you know, as. Somebody was totally interested in it and then ended up, you know, we were doing improv up here and, and then eventually I started doing double act with Tracy, Tracy Burns. Um, at that time, it was like golden age of comedy. Who were some of your favorite comics back then? Like some of the guys that you thought maybe had influence on you and stuff. Oh, I don't know. They all did. They I'm, all did. I'm Pollyanna. Pollyanna. I really yeah. think that anybody who can get up on stage. I know that um, you guys, you mentioned Debbie and you got married in 81. Um, how did you guys meet? And I know when I think of Debbie, I met Debbie in 81 also when she came up here and did improv with us. And um, Debbie Pakel was an ass-kicking good improviser. She is an ass-kicking good improviser. And she had worked the Spaghetti Jam. She worked the Holy City Zoo. She worked all kinds of places. How did you guys She's look? a comedy floozy. She yeah. really is. <laughs> She's been with every group. Femprov, National Theater of the Deranged. I mean, you just go Bad around. aunties. Bad aunties, yeah. Deb and Mike. You know, yeah, well, they comedy underground. That's, that's a great story. The uh, the Devin Mike they had just performed at this club, 
as Comedy Underground with the five of them, and they did the whole night. And then uh, they got the money, or they know they headlined, but they got the money and they split it five ways. So, but we used to haunt all these clubs, all of us comics, even when we weren't working. We would go to the club and hang around right. and drink for free, mm-hmm. you know, and and bullshit with the, the owners and the other comics and stuff. And I think I was working in Walnut Creek, so they were going to come see me. But first, they went out to uh, Pleasant Hill. And went to a Foo place bars? called Foo Bars, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, yeah. yeah. So they did. They and uh, the headliner uh, didn't show up. Rob Becker's plane was late or something. Mm-hmm. So the owner said, "Can you two go up and do something?" And they said, "Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah." And so they went up and did forty-five minutes. And Becker eventually did show up or didn't. I can't remember. But they got paid, and they only had to split the money two ways instead of five ways. And they went, hey! <laughs> and that's yeah. how they started working together. Yeah, yeah. I met Debbie. I was working at the Punchline, and her group, Spaghetti Jam, was on the road because they were uh, doing Earthquake Retrofit on the Spaghetti uh, building. Mm-hmm. So they were... That they was were, in North Beach. In I North Beach, yeah, right, uh-huh. in Grant and Green. And mm-hmm. so they were... Hitting the road, and they were trying all these. They did Chez Jacques and a couple other places, and they were hosting the uh, the open mic and comedy, uh, or yeah, open mic at the Punchline on Sunday. And I went out there and I did my little thing, and uh, I kind of fell in love with this girl that was part of the group. And then I did a I did a bit back then called Death Insurance. And death insurance was, you love your family, don't you? Sure, that's why you, you buy insurance. Home insurance, health insurance, car insurance, and life insurance. Because you want to make sure they're taken care of after you've gone. But what if you die first? You'd feel like a real rat's ass, wouldn't you? That's why I smoked these. And I would pull out a cigarette and light it up. <laughs> Every time I light up one of these, my loved ones smile. Because they know I'm working their best BS. But every once in a while when they're feeling down, uh, I want to give them a jolt. I'll smoke an entire pack at a time. And I had one of those packs of Marlboro Reds. And I would pull it out and uh, fix it so that I could stick the whole thing in my mouth. And then I would use a Zippo to light it. And then i hack and cough and spit. And, and remember, smoke cigarettes. Not for your health, for your family. <laughs> that had to be my closer because there was no way I could breathe after that. So I put them in an ashtray and then I'd leave the stage and I'd offer them to the audience because it was an entire pack of cigarettes I was going to have to throw away. Yeah. And back then they were 35 cents a pack. Right, yeah, yeah. They were $10 a pack. I couldn't afford to do that bit today. Yeah. And so I started offering the cigarettes. And I remember she picked one out of the, and nobody had ever picked a cigarette out of this ashtray, a smoldering spit strewn. Um, uh, 20 cigarettes and she picked one out and and I knew she didn't smoke cigarettes because she held it like a joint not uh-huh. a cigarette you know uh-huh. like, uh, the, like the Ger- like the Germans like Arthur Johnson <laughs> and, and I thought that was the coolest thing and then we just started hanging out yeah, yeah. boom yeah yeah well, you've been a you've been a great comedy item for years, and I know Debbie's been involved with. Uh, in, in, in addition to doing improv all over the place, she's also been producing Comedy Day for years, right? Yeah, she got roped into that uh, when the um, first it was Jose yeah. was the president. Jose Simon uh, was the president of Comedy Day because he put it together in 1981. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, after he died, Jack Anderson took over, who had been on the board. And then he retired, and he handed everything to Debbie. And she's been doing it for almost the last 20 years. 20 years. Yeah, at yeah. least 19, yeah. Comedy Celebration Day, comedy uh, which is held in Golden Gate Park. And then she got the meadow named after Robin Williams. It was originally referred to as Sharon Meadow because it was next to the Sharon Arts Building. And Sharon was some uh, rich type uh, guy, uh, robber baron from uh, 1880s or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so he got, uh, and everybody just called the Meadow. It was right there on Stanion uh, and uh-huh. JFK. Everybody just called the Meadow uh, the Sharon Meadow because it was, but it, so we didn't have to rename it. So she went in and she said, you know, Robin didn't have anything named after him in the city. We should name the medal where Comedy Day is held every yeah. year. Yeah. Because he would always give us, anonymously, he would give us money and you couldn't tell anybody. And he would give us, like, you know, 20 grand a year to put on Comedy Day. And you, Debbie always had to write a letter to his foundation and he had to okay it. And, and so when uh, the check came in and Comedy Day was assured for one more year, because it always escapes by the skin of its teeth. Uh, the the phrase the eagle has landed, so that became known as uh, we got the money for comedy. So they got the meadow, and she went to the city hall, and it took like four or five meetings, you know, the various committees, and then the supervisors to vote on it. It was a, a big deal. Robin Williams Meadow. That's so, great. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, she also she refuses to delegate because she's been disappointed. I guess I don't know. She re- but she does everything. She books it. She she contracts the vendor. She buys the insurance. She she uh, sets. Uh, no, she gets uh, Dennis Egan to set up the staging for free. Uh, she gets uh, the water. She goes picks up the water for backstage. She has to arrange for the porta potties. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's just massive. Yeah, you know? I figure we got a lot in common. I've always you know small time producer up here in different places and. Anyway, I, I have solidarity with Debbie on that one. I it, can't produce. I hate producing. Yeah, it, it, I hate it, people. You know, my theory is, is if you're in an acting troupe and you know how to balance a checkbook, don't tell the other players. <laughs> you will end up the producer. That's the problem. So, you know, any of that happened to me, too. So, But, you know, so we're talking by early 80s, your career's starting to take off. You're getting booked regularly. Yeah, comedy. Yeah. Comedy um, took off. Comedy, comedy took off and you, you feel... Go, go ahead and tell yeah. us about, like, riding the way and starting to get regular bookings. And I remember you won the, the comedy competition in 84. Sam, does it still have, do we still have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This was great. Uh, there was all kinds of hot comics, and in 1984, um, Will was champ. And um, Yeah, it, I did it four times. I came yeah. 20th, 10th, 4th, and 1st. So well, there you go. Yeah, I kept moving up. So that's yeah. why I kept doing it. Yeah. yeah. And so, it was, I loved it because it made you focus. It was a, a week of uh, prelims where it was you, you were one of 20 comics, and five comics made it out of that prelims. Then the second week was another 20 comics, and five more comics made it out. Then the third week was the 10 comics, the semifinals, and then the fourth week was the five best out of that 10. So for that month, for those three weeks, but pretty much that month, you would live, breathe, and eat your act. And I really liked that immersion. I yeah, liked yeah. that uh, marination. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it made me 
made me uh, focus. And then what happened with comedy was, um, you know, all the old hippies wanted to sit down and hear the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And so they were, they were getting too old for rock and roll, and comedy, you know, was the same kind of, you know, rail against the system. You know, everything was, uh, you know, it was the same kind of attitude. And comedy, the club started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and more and more and more. And then cable TV discovered how cheap it was to produce a com comedy show, because they didn't have to pay writers, and there were no music fees. And comics were self-contained, and so they started doing, you know, evening at the Improv, and, right. and uh, so many shows proliferated. They eventually came up with the Comedy Channel, where they got rid of stand-up, cleverly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and so cable TV kind of exploded, and then the comedy clubs followed in that wake because. Uh, uh, the, the art form had been planted, uh, you know, and people understood what it was. Yeah. Even in, you know, towns that were not like Chicago that always had a couple of clubs or New York or yeah. L.A. or San Francisco, always had a couple of clubs. But now it started, like, uh, the last two cities to get stand-up comedy clubs were the last two cities in America to get cable TV. And that was Milwaukee and Cincinnati. Because uh, the politicians kept fighting over, you know, who gets the thing, and I want my guy, and you know, he. Won. So uh, that was uh, the last two towns in nineteen nineteen eighty four. There might have been forty full time comedy clubs in America in nineteen ninety four. There were four hundred and forty wow. comedy clubs wow. in America. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. So that ten years, that was such a, you know, it was. Uh, how, how many do you reckon there are now? Because I know it's beep gone down. No, no. I would still say there's uh, two hundred. Two hundred. So it's still it's still doing okay. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. So are, are you are how often are you on the road? How often are you on the road oh, then I, compared to now? I uh, I don't do clubs anymore. I get uh -huh. too old for the clubs. There's mm -hmm. about four clubs in America I can do, mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise uh, I'm too old, you know, because they want to see their own generation Contemporary reflect. stuff. And I ain't famous enough. I was famous, you know, like uh, Louis Black or, you yeah. know, one of those guys, yeah. uh, you know, I can go around and do uh, clubs and get, so I'm, what I did was in the 90s, I turned to theater, started doing theater, did a show in New York, I might have, uh, peaked early. I did a show off-Broadway called The All-American Sport of Bipartisan Bashing. And that <laughs> that did well. And that introduced me to the one-man show, which was pretty much me doing stand-up for an hour uh, 20 instead of me doing stand-up for 45. And But then I learned how to try to put an arc to it. But it's still pretty much me doing jokes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of your favorite cities to work? Mendocino? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this was, last night was, per, it was kind of like a concert type situation where you're in front of a hundred people, they're all here to see you, and it's kind of a theatrical setting. You know, unfortunately, we don't have any, you know, alcohol available here as a school, so we're kind of stuck on that one. But I think it's kind of a nice setting for you at this time point, you know. Yeah, that was a great crowd. Yeah, it's a good, and we'll have a bigger crowd tonight. That was a smart crowd. That was, 
Uh, Minneapolis is a good town. Yeah. Because uh, I can still do the club there because mm-hmm. the way the guy runs it. Mm-hmm. Washington, uh, they they got rid of... Um, it's it's a good town because they understand all my references. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, New York is okay. Chicago is okay. Uh, Seattle and Portland are both good for me. The San Francisco audience. Yeah. The thing is, I'm aging and my audience is aging because yeah. I was ubiquitous in the Bay Area in uh, the 80s and 90s in aughts. I mean, that's when... You know, they had uh, so many clubs, and uh, and I didn't move to L.A., and I didn't move to New York, you know, and I just stayed here. And I, because you, there were so many clubs, you could work each one two or three times. So anybody who saw comedy in the 80s and 90s eventually saw me, and those people moved. You know, there was uh, the, 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 the immigration, the diaspora out of San Francisco, because right. they had kids. And uh, so they they still kind of know who I am. So I developed a little Petaluma, Auburn, Red Bluff, Chico, right. uh, you know, Santa Cruz, Monterey, uh, Santa Rosa, Windsor, Cloverdale. I mean, I, I can find little theaters all yeah. over where I can do my little one-man show. And I can do it... As long as I keep coming up with new material. <laughs> comedy clubs, oh, they hate me at comedy clubs, you know, and that's why I'm doing theaters and stuff. The average age of a comedy club is 18 to 35, which was great when I was 18 to 35. But now that I'm approaching 40, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I go up on stage and I still do a couple of clubs and the Friday second show, you know, where, where there's a. Uh, 24 people in the audience and, and the average age is about nine. <laughs> they always sit like, why is this bitter old man lecturing me? I have to laugh. I mean, I've seen your stuff since the early 80s and every once in a while, like last night, every once in a while you sneak, uh, you know, your old school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I love Reagan it because it's like, hey, I remember yeah. that joke. Yeah. But in, in terms of the overall show last night, I hadn't seen about 90% of it, which is, you know, pretty impressive. I mean, you know, because you've been writing for years, so. Well, in 2012, and that was when Obama won re-election against yeah. Mitt Romney. People got so disgusted with politics in 2012 and that nobody wanted to hear it. That's why I wrote The Boomer Show in 2013. Yeah. And I thought in 2017, after Hillary won, that I would have to go back to The Boomer Show. But then yeah, uh, he won, and uh, people really need... That to see, you know, it's it's part. It's not so much laughing at my jokes about him. It's knowing that these people are like-minded. That you know, it's almost like a a, a Trump. A, a TA meeting, a Trump yeah. Anonymous meeting. You know? Yeah, well, you made that point. It was the joke, PTS. Right, President Trump's stress disorder. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a great joke. Being a political comic, as you might imagine, it's an up and down, left and right, in and out, hot and cold, the whole Katy Perry song. Sometimes there's nothing going on, and I'm screwed. But not now. <laughs> So not now. <laughs> Most not now in the history of not now. Not now with cream and chocolate. <laughs> 24 year aged in oak barrels. 
and uh, it, you know, these people were all here. You were like the big therapist. You yeah, know? yeah. It was a big therapist. I'm, I'm serious. I, I yeah. used to get people coming up saying thank you. You know, mm-hmm. I never got thank you before. I got mm-hmm. a nice set or funny shit, but nobody ever said thank you. Yeah, yeah. Last night, go ahead, please, I pro- please. No, no, I promised to shave my head because I haven't cut my hair since uh, uh, the inauguration. So yeah. people, people would come up to me on the way out saying, I hope next time I see you, you have a shaved head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the Mendo crowd for you. Going back a little bit to the when you're playing clubs and then you're doing, you've done all kinds of, you've done hundreds of TV shows all over the map on that, Comedy Central, Letterman, HBO, Showtime. When you went, when you made the transition, one of the things I often hear from comedians is that when they're on TV, then suddenly they feel like their material is taken and put in a storage locker because people have already seen it before. Is there, when you were doing uh, like some of those shows, did you always feel like you had to have new stuff for the next time or the new, next show? Or yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, that that was you know. yeah. Cause it's a voracious beast. It eats it eats it up, and the the not just for the audience, but the show themselves wanted it on new seven minutes. Right. You know. Yeah. Every show, do you have a new seven? Then you would have to. You know, send it to him somehow or yeah. something. Yeah. What were some of your favorite shows to work? Oh, I did. Uh, <clears throat> I did a show with the Smothers Brothers, which was a lot of fun. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 It was me and Barry Crimmins and Jimmy Tingle. Oh, wow! All well, political. And comedy, Jim Morris. Much. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a high concept thing. It was uh, politics and poker, and there's yeah. a song called Politics and Poker, and uh, we would be sitting around. Uh, playing poker, and I think Tommy was with us, and uh, uh, all the comics, and then somebody would yell out a subject, and we'd all have a, a line about it. It was kind of choreographed. It was it was an odd thing. There was a a Tom Tom Snyder. No, it was uh, Charlie Rose. Oh yeah, it was Night Watch, huh. and they would fly us out to D.C. and it was me and Jim Morris and Harry Shearer and Richard Belzer. And we oh, were, yeah. We were like a round table and we did that for a couple of years. Like once a month. Oh, that sounds fun. I missed that. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, it was, it. you know, after midnight. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I got banned from Letterman. Yeah. Why did you get banned from Letterman? Oh, I, it was uh, the executive producer uh, went over my set with me because I was appearing at Caroline's that week. Mm-hmm. And Caroline's in New York. And this was when it was on 24th Street, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he had come in to see me and do my set. And they wanted me to do non-political stuff, and I wanted to do political stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I did my... And I, said, I told him, I'm going to start out with this set, and uh, the first seven minutes is what I'm going to do. And he said, okay. And so then I'm on stage, the first seven minutes I do is political. I'm so proud. I came off, and uh, he said, yeah, that was great. And it turns out uh, he hadn't watched me. He had come to the club for two different things, and they were both called Blow. So I do my little political stuff. And he comes running up to me afterwards. What did you do? That's not what you did last night? I said, yeah, that's exactly what I did last night. And uh, he claimed uh, that I screwed the show, and Letterman was kind of aloof and was kind of mm. weird. Mm. It was weird. I, uh, so I, I went into a tailspin after that. Yeah. Oh, no, just just curious. So the, it's interesting how that kind of stuff happens. You know, now, apropos television, um, you know, I often 
I've often thought this. I like Bill Maher a lot. I think he's a good show. But oftentimes when I'm watching real time or when back when it was politically incorrect, I think, there but for the grace of God or whatever, the comedy guys could be sitting Will Durst. And I've often thought that. And um, I've often thought, has HBO or Showtime or any of these other, have they approached you to do a show like that back so many years ago? Or it just seems like I just, I've seen this a number of times that uh, Durst should be doing that show. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. You yeah. guys have good instincts. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think you'd be good with the guests. I mean, I think you're amiable. In a lot of ways, I think you're kind of a working class maher, you know, just regular guy kind yeah. of thing, you know. Have some other networks talked to you about, hey, why don't you think about this? You know, we did a show. Mm-hmm. We did a show called A Year's Worth. Mm-hmm. And it was on Annie. Oh. And it was a, a pilot. And we aired it on New Year's Eve. Uh, and it was, so it was a look back at the year. And uh, it, it, it won a Cable Ace Award. It was very well received. And that's when A&E decided to get out of the comedy business. Because oh. before that, they were uh, the comedy and Nazi channel. You know, it was all, oh, yeah. it was all Bud Friedman and Adolf Hitler. Oh, that's so, right. It would yeah. be uh, biography or uh, yeah, yeah. documentaries about Nazis yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have had a couple of shows bumped, I guess, right? Uh, the Durst Amendment, Citizen Durst. Um, was that similar to Letterman type thing? Uh, those were on PBS. Okay. Oh. Citizen Durst was me following uh, the primaries around one year. I think it was 96. I think that was 96. Mm-hmm. 92, I followed the primaries around for Comedy Central. And then at the end of uh, the election process, on election night, it was me and Bill Maher uh, co-hosting the end of the year show. And then he kind of ended up with Politically Incorrect. So 96, I did Citizen Durst. And then we did a show for PBS called Livelihood. And Livelihood was about people who work for a living. We did four shows a year for four or five years. Because uh, they were ours. And then I uh, did a show on local PBS called Durst Amendment. Yeah. And we used to hook up with uh, Mark Russell, because Mark Russell yeah. used to have mm-hmm. his shows, and they were half hours. And it's hard for PBS to sell half hours. So so we hooked, whenever he had a half hour, we would do our half hour, and our local station would put uh, the... On the end, so it was an hour block. That actually seems like a really good idea. Yeah, my God. And it started gaining uh, traction nationally, and I think uh, uh, we had 12 or 14 affiliates do that for the last year. And then a new guy came in to KQED, and he, he didn't—he uh, he thought he was a big comedy guy, and he didn't like me. Yeah. I was a—I was a brown shoe in his patent leather world. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, or or maybe a, a Ben Davis shirt in his, you know, his tuxedo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, well, I know you, uh, you mentioned. Uh, well, we talked before. You've performed in front of uh, Old Bush, H.W. H.W. Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Yeah, three yeah. elected presidents. Yeah, right. Yeah, three elected presidents. Great. Did Did you get a chance to? Is, Talk to him, or it was just that handshaky kind of thing, and see you later. Gore, I got to talk to a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, Clinton, 
The Clinton gig was for a Barbara Boxer benefit at the Fairmont in San Francisco. And uh, he had uh, stepped down in 2001, and I think this was about a year and a half late. And then Clinton was great for comedy, you know. I never had sexual relations with that woman. He was pointing at Helen Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Or Hillary Clinton, but he met. You are my target demographic. You are. Your people who read or know someone who does. So it was a year and a half after he was president. And uh, it was maybe six months after 9-11. What it was, uh, it was a benefit that Sue Murphy put together. Oh, yeah. Murphy St. Paul. Murphy St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And she put it together as a fundraiser for Barbara Boxer. And she took the bullet. It was a three-act show. She went on stage first, greeting everybody and getting in it. So that was taking the bullet. And then Kevin Kataoka did the middle act, and then I headlined. But Clinton was late. So what went from a 45-minute show, it was now became a 30-minute show because, you know, they had to get the people out of there, and they couldn't uh, rent the, the Fairmont all night long and stuff. So it got truncated. So, because that was known as Clinton time back then. That right. He, he was always late. Yeah, right. He was always late. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And I used to have this joke about, where was Cheney? We know where Bush was. Right. It's funny in Vice, the new movie. Right, they yeah. They show you. But I used to have the, oh, where, you know, and then the joke was, we uh, we don't know where Cheney is, and we knew, we we told you we'd have to kill you, but we don't know. Um, and then when they announced the war, they frog-marched Cheney out to some undisclosed location in a bunker in Maryland. Meanwhile, Bush is in the White House giving a speech to the nation in front of a window with traffic behind him. Right, you know, yeah. why, don't, why don't they, they, they you know, he's, he's like that goat in Jurassic Park. So I'm doing this joke Clinton's in the front row And he's laughing And then I I had a snapper And I just hit it a little quicker than normally And it was You know during that whole anthrax thing They had Bush opening Cheney's mail And Clinton laughed so hard He spit water through his nose I swear to God I swear to God I gave the former president of the United States A sinus douche And that that has to be the highlight Of my political comedy career I would see that that's great that's yeah. really great yeah basically when you see them you know they're it's distant oh no but he came up afterwards oh, cool. and he put his arm around all of us wow and, and uh, yeah he told me why my joke was funny you know he said you know you know Cheney was sick when that happened and so he's giving me like little insights uh, you know a color for my joke and yeah he put his arm yeah he was he was great yeah uh, you know who else was there? George H.W. was great yeah he what a what a, a gracious man because I did my little bit for him at one of his uh, uh, Thousand Points of Lights things uh-huh. you know one of his foundation things at Epcot Center in Florida and uh, he, this was when his son was running so I guess it was 96 2000 92 oh. oh no you're right 2000 it was uh-huh. probably 2000 mm-hmm. or 2004 uh, or something but they told me no bush material I said dude you know I'm a professional I know <laughs> I, get, I get plenty of Clinton Cheney stuff. I mean uh, Clinton uh, 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 Gore stuff so don't worry about it. I only had to do like 12 minutes so 
I do my little 12 minutes and great crowd response and uh, you know I mean they're they're primed they're gonna laugh at anything you know it's a political crowd he introduced me gave me that you know seal of approval and shit so it's it's gonna be it's gonna be halfway decent and uh, so he comes on after me after I come off stage Will Durst very funny like to see what you'd say if I weren't in the room and I, and I yelled out from the back of the no you wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> The best laugh of the night. Yeah, that's and great. And he laughed too. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, I heard uh, uh, when you know he passed away recently um, that uh, he kind of befriended Dana Carvey. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. He was kind of doing you know all the Dana was doing that ass kicking good route, uh, uh, HW routine. And um, it's the fact that George H.W. reached out to him yeah. and said, why don't you do it with me? I mean, what other president, you know, would Trump would ask Alec Baldwin? No. no. But George H.W. asked Dana Carr. I mean, that shows a certain sense of humor. Yeah, I yeah. think I think he kind of. And it, humility. Yeah. And he's, he's sort of an old fashioned guy in a certain sense. And, you know, relatively modest, relatively for a politician. I mean, you know, getting shot down when you're 19. I mean, he's, you know, he yeah. came close. I mean, he got lucky a submarine surface right nearby and all that kind of stuff. But I think there was something about the guy that was kind of, even though he's a rich... Patrician. Son, yeah, Patrician, asshole. son of a yeah. senator and all that stuff. There was something about the guy that was kind of regular, you know? And I, I got the vibe, you know, and so forth. Anyway, I, it's a great part story. Of that, part of that was growing up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Post-war. Yeah. yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, but, oh, yeah, I, I got it. I didn't get to hear the Will and Willie show. Uh, this is what you did with former San Francisco mayor and uh, a speaker, the assembly speaker, Willie right, right. Brown, who's still around kicking and being a, right? Yeah, you know what? You're recounting all this shit. I did okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You I totally did. forgot. Oh, you've had it. You, from the point of view of people in the provinces like us, you, you've been, you know, you've been an inspiration. I mean, ah. you know, you know, but the Will and Willie show, just, just like I say, uh, mayor of San Francisco for eight years, right? Two full terms. Right, right. And he was speaker of the assembly for a long time. He knows politics as he knows the backs and backside of politics as well as anybody. And uh, how mo- how long did you do the Willie and Willie show? Or are you still in eleven months? We 11 did months. it for eleven months. We did it one month as a test, and then uh, we signed a year's contract. And it was a morning show, morning radio show from seven to ten in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the great part of working with Willie was he would not do meetings. Mostly when you do radio, you always have to have meetings with the general manager who tells you what you're doing wrong and how you have to change the show. Willie wouldn't bear that. So we didn't have to do any meetings. Great. Yeah. Uh, He would read, like when he had to read a script, you know, for a commercial or a promo or something, he would read it once. And he was blind as a bat, so it'd have to be in, you know, like 72-point font. (laughs) And uh, he would show up at uh, 5 minutes to 7 in the morning and leave at 9.58, because we went to news. It was was a cruise game. And he had the best Rolodex in the history of the industry. I mean, he would call up Michael Jackson. He had Michael Jackson... Uh, call him up and uh, not not the talk show host in LA no the real Michael Jackson wow. and uh, Clive Davis and I mean he just he just got everybody you know senators and, and so they would call up and be part of the show yeah yeah 
Wow. Yeah. 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 So he's a funny politician, and I'm a political comic. So yeah. it worked out really well. And did did you uh, have you <coughs> stayed in touch? Or yeah, yeah. We saw each other the other night. Oh, great. Yeah. I had a show at uh, Cobb's as part of Sketchfest, and it was uh, Trump year three. Mm-hmm. So we had three or four comics, and we each did 10 minutes of material, and then we had a round table, and I got Willie to come up and do the round table with us. Cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we try to do a podcast once uh, every two months or so. Oh, that's great. So is that a kind of a Will and Willie podcast? Thing? Exactly. And oh, you can great. go to willandwillie.com and see them all. Oh, great. Great. Well, good. You're giving us some inspiration for this podcast. Yeah, I, I've always, I've always liked him. I've always, he's been, you know, politically. I figure he's, he's pretty. He's, I think he's a good representative of a lot of the things that I would like to see. But I also like him for his ability to take down big shots with a with a line or two. You know, he seems he's got a good left hook. That's why he always liked me because I would say the shit that he never could. Yeah. He wasn't allowed to. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I know you do. You do all kinds of writing. I see you in Funny Times. I've seen you in various other magazines. I almost always get to read your stuff. But I, I wonder. Oftentimes, we're writing for the we're writing for the podcast, you know. And um, I can't help. I get I get on a on a, uh, a rant, and then I find myself getting serious. I find myself getting angry, and I can't get back to the funny stuff. Yeah, I know. How, I know. how, how do you how do you keep in touch? with Yeah, that? yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. It's, uh, sometimes I get so angry, I forget the funny. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, especially with this guy, you know. And <laughs> this guy. <laughs> I know, I know, and poor Hillary, I was, you know, poor, it was her own damn fault. Yeah, she, she didn't just beat him in the debate, she crushed him in the debate. But the bar for Trump was so low, he actually got points for not flinging his own feces at Yeah, but uh, I uh, need that deadline. Uh, I need I need to, you know. It keeps me energized and juiced. And I I write for a, a column, and uh, uh, so I got a I got the deadline. I, I do commentaries for radio stations and for just like fifteen radio stations. So I okay. write a two minute commentary. Oh yeah, that's due every Thursday night. Because uh, it has to be in their mailbox uh, Friday morning, because some of them play it then. So I do that two minutes, which is about three hundred words. Uh, hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words, and then uh, I do something, uh, you know, a couple of jokes, hopefully. Uh, so the column is about six hundred words. Mm-hmm. So and I, sometimes uh, the commentary is, you know, the bare bones and uh, the scaffolding for the column, and sometimes it's it's got nothing to do with it, mm-hmm. you know, but it, the column has to go out, and that gets syndicated to about 30, 40 newspapers and a bunch of websites, and I yeah. never know, but not big-time ones, yeah. just, you know, like uh, the Prescott... Prescott Statesman, they hate me in Prescott, Arizona. Mm-hmm. I've I been get, there once. I get yeah. the most uh, angry emails from there. I see. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So, so I have those two deadlines in my life, Thursday and Monday. So uh-huh. everything else kind of revolves around that. Do you a lot of times run it by Debbie, or do you like you just? No, keep... she hates my material. She, <laughs> she doesn't 
She doesn't like my columns. <laughs> in that case, I wanted to, uh, since we're getting t- uh, toward the end now, I've, I've, like I said, I've, I've read and enjoyed it. I can't help but help but ask a couple more. Ba- just a bit another baseball question. Ah. <laughs> Like I said, you started as a Braves fan. You've been out here for years. Just some of your favorite players and what might be the Wilder's dream outfield that you've seen over the years. And I know having seen a lot of these guys, we might have the same guys, but who are some of your favorite players and dream outfield type thing? Well, of course, there's uh, Aaron and uh, and Mays. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, and Bonds, Aaron, Mays, and Bonds. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the three most impressive and, uh, you know, we were big Aaron fans, and most of it was because, you know, you had uh, Willie out here in San Francisco, and you had Mickey Mantle in New York, and those two always dominated the talk about the uh, best uh, outfielder, and they always ignored uh, Aaron. And so in Wisconsin, you know, we took that as, you know, coastal chauvinism, yeah. and that was part of it. But... uh yeah, this this team the the team, you know the Buster Posey led Giants that won the even years. Right. Uh, what a what a you know incredible, and they were lucky. They, yeah, they were lucky. They they were never the favorites. No. In any of those playoff series. And you know, I still think uh, the 2014 when Mad Bum pitched a complete game and then came back the next day in the fourth inning when uh, Tim, what's his name, the, oh, Tim Hudson. Hudson went out in the fourth inning and, and uh, Boshi brought in um, Mad Bum the next day. I mean, that's right out of Christy Mathewson. I know. It's like 1914 yeah, or yeah. something, you know? And I thought to myself, what a guy. Oh, what, what can a you imagine player, being you know? a Kansas City Royal yeah. and uh, watching Mad Bum come out from the bullpen going, oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. What a horse, man. And, you know, he seems right out, you know, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's right out. Hickory. Yeah, Hickory, North Carolina. That's all great stuff. And I, I I, have to say, I saw Bonds play maybe 15, 16 games over the years. And he must have hit a home run in 12 of them. And I know maybe juiced some of the stuff, but um, he, he had... Juiced. He wasn't juiced until... Late. Sosa and McGuire were juiced. That was right. obvious. Yeah. And he wasn't juiced until then. Yeah. He had, when he came out to the Giants, he already had 500 steals. He already had 400 homers. It struck me that he was going to the Hall of Fame, and by getting juiced, he may have screwed up. But he seems to be getting more votes. Do you think he's going to make the Hall of Fame? I think he will. I think so, too. Yeah. These, these uh, Hall of Fame Hall of voters... Yeah. These baseball writers. Oh, he wasn't a good guy. Yeah, all right. Yeah, he right. might have cheated. What about Babe Ruth? Oh, well, yeah. he was drinking liquor and during the prohibition. Wasn't that? Uh, wasn't that against the law? In that yeah. Bill Bryson book about 1927, he has it that the Bambino stooped Lou Gehrig's wife. <laughs> And that's why I was stunned. And Lou Gehrig's on, you know, Lou Gehrig was a muscle man. Lou Gehrig was just about fit to be tied, and he was going to go after the Bambino. This might have been 33, 1933, 34. But when I read that, I was like, man, babe, come on. This is Lou we're talking about, you know? And then, uh, well, also, I mean, Jim Boughton's book, 
where yeah. he, uh, at Ball Four, where he talks about uh, greenies. And he's talking, yeah. there were bowls of greenies for day games after night games, and 70% of the teams were using greenies. What about that? Well, yeah. that's against the law. That was sure. amphetamines, for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Nobody ever asked Hank Aaron if he used uh, any greenies. You know, yeah. oh, Hank Aaron, the, the, yeah. you know, the god, yeah. and Mr. Clean complaining about bonds. No, I want to know about the greenies. Yeah, I'd like to know that all that stuff. I mean, anyway, but, you know, it, it is kind of classic stuff. We couldn't help. We got off on a baseball tangent. But apropos that, last thing, uh, Giants for 2019, do you think they're going to make a comeback? Do you think it's the beginning of a rebuilding process? Or No idea. I, everything I know is wrong. I thought mm-hmm. last year they had a good team. and I did, too. Yeah. I was all set. Yeah. I was yeah. all set, yeah. yeah. And they kind of too many. Well, you know, they were at 500 until they lost. Uh, they traded. No, they traded McCutcheon. Oh, yeah. But they were a 500 yeah. team all the yeah. way through August, you know, for yeah. no apparent reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bochi held them together with gum and bailing wire. You yeah, know? he did. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll ask you one more, and that's it then, I think. Any predictions for 2020? Anything you see? Like I didn't think. Uh, crystal ball kind of stuff? I didn't think uh, the tangerine hair ball would, would ever make it in 2016, so I thought it was going to be Hillary all the way. Yeah. I have no prediction. I like uh, Kamala. I like yeah. Kamala. I like her, too. And I, I I think she's very impressive, you know. And I think she's got some charisma. And I also think she's got a little bit of, I can talk to regular people, that somebody maybe maybe I like Elizabeth Warren, but I don't know that she has the mensch, you know, I'm a mensch and you are, too, kind of thing down that, that maybe Kamala does or certainly Barack did, you know. I'm a regular guy kind of thing. Yeah, that's I. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to get racial, mm-hmm. but uh, the the difference between the black community coming out for Barack in in twenty oh eight and twenty twelve versus not coming out in twenty sixteen. I mean, that was that was the difference. That yeah, was, that was that was the entire difference. Yeah, and in twenty twenty, if you can get the black community to come out with Kamala, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Democratic Party now, and and yeah. if that's you know people are going to pussyfoot around and say, oh well, you know that's one contributing factor. No, that was the difference. That was, and, and be honest with yourself. It's gonna it's gonna have to be her or Cory Booker. It's gonna have to be a minority that leads the Democrats if they want to energize that part of their base. Yeah, yeah, those are two strong candidates too. And Booker's also got that thing. Didn't he run in a house and a burning house and pull people? Out <laughs> he actually did that, didn't he? I mean, that a, is not a true story. I think so. Something yeah. back in, uh, New, in Newark. He was mayor of Newark, right? Yeah. yeah. I think Hillary could have done it, and people would have. Oh, the cats were planted. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, we want to thank you, Ton Pshaw. The honor has been mine. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. It, it, can't wait for, to do this again. This all night had a gig uh, a couple of Junes ago. It was up in uh, Reno, Sparks. Saturday night, Sunday, I'm coming down the hill back to San Fran on I-80, and, and I was listening to the Giants, and they were playing on the East Coast the Sunday afternoon game, which finished at like uh, 12.31, and they switched the coverage of U.S. Open Golf Tournament, and it was pretty exciting, you know, final round, one of the four majors, a couple of lead changes, and I listened from Sacramento all the way to the Bay Bridge, but I realized what it was, I was listening to golf on the radio! <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Thanks to our artist of the show, comedian Will Durst. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.